Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. We have a great episode shaping up for today because we have Dr. Randall Balmer with his new book on how religion shapes sports. It's called Passion Plays, and Dr. Balmer has all the details and a great story coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we have a very interesting discussion that I think is about to commence here. We have a, a gentleman that's wrote a book that is on a topic that I don't think we've ever had here in the Pigpen on football history. Uh, his name is Dr. Randall Balmer, and he has wrote a book called Passion Plays. And it's got a very interesting subject to it, a very interesting uh, theme to it. I think we'll bring him in right now. Uh, Dr. Randall Balmer, welcome to the Pigpen. Thank you, Darren. Happy to be here. Well, we are sure glad to have you here, sir. Before we get going in, into the subject of your book and your title of your book, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, especially as it pertains to, to football history. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I grew up uh, uh, as a kid, like loving sports, uh, tried to play sports, didn't do all that well, I suppose, but I, I, I did my best. And so I'm, I'm a sports fan. I wouldn't say I'm one of uh, those diehard fans that I keep hearing about, but uh, I, I, I follow it uh, fairly regularly. And uh, I, I have my sports allegiances and so forth. And uh, that was part of my, my background. The, re- the immediate catalyst for this book actually was discovering talk radio, sports talk radio in the early 1990s. I was uh, teaching at Columbia University in New York at the time when uh, WNBC made a transition to WFAN and became a sports talk station. And I was just riveted. I was just fascinated that uh, these hosts could sustain conversations and debates for hours and hours over whether or not Joe Torrey should have lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning. And I, I became hooked. I, I loved it. And the, I, the book is really an attempt to understand why we Americans have such a peculiar passion for sports. I, I'm certainly aware that there is there are sports fans elsewhere in the world, especially when the World Cup runs around, comes around and so forth. But uh, it seems to me we Americans are, are really... Um, unusually dedicated to sports. And I wanted to try to understand that and why that is. Well, that is definitely a, a lot of truth to that. I, I can 
raise my hand right now and say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm guilty of, of that pleasure. And, uh, you know, of course, having a podcast, you're talking about sports every single day. And it, it is very addictive in to listen to or to talk it or just even if you're not on the radio, just to, to have, have uh, some of your friends or cohorts that you're sitting around uh, at work or on a cup of coffee, just talking and the subject always comes up about the latest game or some sports topic. And it's a uh, very intriguing to uh, get into this and, and talk about that. Now, first of all, I guess before we get going here, uh, maybe you could again tell us the, the full title of your book and where maybe people could uh, purchase it. And we'll talk about it again at the end of the program as well. Sure. The book is, uh, the title is Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. And it's available, I guess, wherever books are sold. Uh, bookshop.org is a good place to buy books because it supports local booksellers, but uh, also a local bookseller, a, a, a storefront um, brick and mortar store is a good place. Amazon, of course, has it, Barnes and Noble. So it's uh, it's widely available. Okay. Well, let, let's get into the topic uh, of your book. Uh, I guess for you, you sort of gave us the background of you, and I'm assuming that's probably some of the, the gist of why you, it motivated you to, to write this book as well. That's right. Yes. I, in, in a way, I want to try to understand myself. Right? Why was I so passionate about some of these sports, even though I'm maybe not quite so passionate as uh, the people who call into <laughs> these mm-hmm. programs all the time. But yes, I, 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 I'm fascinated by the fact, and, and my field, actually my academic field, I probably should stay, say that as well. My academic field is American religious history. So I study and have studied religion in North America for a very long time. And what's uh, distinctive about religion in North America is that historically, we Americans have been uh, really off the charts in terms of religious devotion and religious adherence. And I think that's begun to change. I'm one, the uh, polling data suggests that it has begun to change over the last couple of decades. That is uh, religious devotion and adherence and affiliation has been going down over the last several decades. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But at the same time, I think that passion for sports and devotion to sports has been rising. And I think there's probably a correlation between the two. Well, that, you know, you've really caught my ear, especially with the title. when I, when I saw this a, a few weeks back and, you know, cause I'm, I'm a man of faith and I'm passionate about my faith, but I'm also passionate about my sports. So you have my, my world's colliding two things that I've always sort of <laughs> considered separate and, you know, don't, don't uh, cross the streams uh, here to say, but uh, you know, that you are sort of bringing those worlds together and we're, we're very interested in, in hearing how, how those two merge. Yeah, I, what happens, well, first of all, I, I focus on the four major team sports in North America. That would be baseball, football, hockey, and basketball. And all four of those sports really develop, for the most part, roughly from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. By that time, by the middle of the 20th century, those sports have more or less assumed their current form. But as these sports are developing in the 19th century, they develop develop against the background of the Industrial Revolution. And what's happening in America, uh, North America more generally, is that men in particular are beginning to work outside the home and outside the farm. They're no longer engaging in subsistence living. They're beginning to work in factories, textile mills, and so forth. And many of them also in sedentary office jobs. So there's a great deal of 
concern in the Anglo-American world, that is both in North America as well as back in Britain, that men are becoming too sedentary. That is, they're becoming, uh, they're not going, getting outside enough. They're not engaging in athletics. They're becoming weak and even sissified. And a number of religious leaders are noticing that, and they very cleverly, I think, try to combine religion, in this case, Protestantism, with athleticism. And they, they come up with a movement that is known to historians as muscular Christianity. That is to say that we want to appeal to men to be athletic, to be virile, and also to, to be in the churches. And one of the complaints is that the women have had charge of the church work long enough, and we need to find a way to lure men back to the faith and back to the churches. And part of the strategy for doing that was to combine religion with sports or with athletic uh, um, endeavors. And probably the best example of that institutionally would be the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association that provided both religion and YMCA's really were quite religious. Uh, they're not less so today, but in the beginning, that was uh, the, at the core of the YMCA to combine, combine religion with recreation. And uh, for example, then it's no accident that basketball was invented by a Presbyterian minister at the YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is today, of course, uh, Springfield College. And he was trying to, he was charged actually by his instructor with inventing a game that would occupy young men between the baseball season and the football season. So it had to be played indoors, had to be played in a very confined space. And of course, what I argue in the book is basketball symbolically is a kind of metaphor for urban life. That is, at the very time that Americans are flocking to the cities in large numbers in the 1890s, which is when basketball was invented, Naismith, James Naismith comes up with a game that, that in many ways replicates urban life. That is, it is the challenge of maneuvering in a very constricted space without impeding the progress of others much like walking down Fifth Avenue at lunchtime or Michigan Avenue at rush hour or Times Square in the evening. And so basketball becomes a, a metaphor for urban life. And as African-Americans begin to move into Northern cities, including Manhattan, including New York City, of course, in the after the turn of the 20th century, they begin to gravitate to YMCAs, which is when they learn basketball and then uh, play it and begin to excel at it. So. Uh, again, I'm not sure where your question got me to this point, so <laughs> I need to no. retrace my steps a little bit. <laughs> no, you know, you're 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 laying out the the groundwork uh, and uh, telling it very well. So the YMCA is sort of that um, that catalyst or that that meeting place of, of religion and, and sports. That's their their um, vehicle, I guess, to to portray what you're saying. You know, during the Industrial Revolution, to bring men into getting a little bit more fit. Um, Probably we need some uh, revival of that to this day with the video games going on with our children and everything too. But it's interesting that you talked about Dr. Naismith in the Springfield uh, YMCA. And, uh, you know, because also one of his students and also one of 
believe one of the first participants in his basketball game was uh, a young man named Amos Alonzo Stagg, who had quite a bit of uh, the foundations of early football. So that's, that's interesting that you, you, you bring those uh, two about, you have uh, two major sports that are sort of sprouting from that, that one uh, YMCA building. Yes, actually, uh, uh, Naismith and Amos Alonzo Staggs were uh, were uh, teammates on the uh, the football team at at uh, the YMCA training school, and they were um, undersized compared to the other football powerhouses at that time, which of course were Yale, Princeton, Harvard, uh, the Ivy League schools, and uh, the football team at the Springfield School came to be known as Staggs stubby Christians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they, they could have been called worse. I'm sure. So <laughs> well, I expect they probably were <laughs> <laughs> oh, very interesting. Okay. So, so, I mean, I, I really like the, the metaphor, how you've uh, say, say that with a basketball sort of being that, uh, you know, going through without uh, getting each other's way and avoiding each other. And uh, that's a very interesting uh, insight. Well, and I, you would particularly want to talk about football, so I'll, let me kind of uh, talk about that as well. Sure. Uh, football, of course, evolves from really two games, uh, uh, rugby and uh, what we know today as, as soccer. And uh, these are uh, also, in their early days, they're known as mob games. And in fact, all of these games are mob games in that you have a lot of participants. Uh, sometimes you don't even have uh, a to limited fields, and so everybody just kind of is crowding onto the onto the onto the field. But one of the uh, common characteristics in the evolution of these four major team sports is moving from mob game to a more regulated field and rules that govern behaviors. So, for example, with football, one of the major points in the evolution of football is when Walter Camp, who's uh, usually called the father of American football, finally persuaded other schools, meaning Princeton, Harvard, uh, and uh, Columbia and others, to reduce the number of players on a team from 15 to 11. And he also disliked the rugby scrum. So he got rid of that in favor of a line of scrimmage. And so that's why we have a line of scrimmage in football. And he did that in part to try to mitigate some of the violence that is associated with rugby. Although I'm not sure that worked all that well because uh, with a line of scrimmage, of course, the linemen can kind of uh, uh, get a, a head of steam before they run into the other players. But nevertheless, that was part of the idea. And in particular, he wanted to, to introduce strategy into the game of football. And what's important to remember about the game of football in terms of its, its um, history is that football in more or less the current form in which we know it was really developed by the sons, brothers, and nephews of, of Union Army soldiers in the Civil War. So it really is developed at these Northeastern schools, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and so forth, uh, Penn as well, in the years after the Civil War. And football is the quintessential war game because it has to do with the conquest and the defense of territory, much like the battle at Gettysburg or Antietam 
in the Civil War or uh, Manassas or Bull Run. These are all battlefields. And again, this is how you determine a winner uh, or, or a survivor in these battlefields is who could take the most territory from, from uh, the opponent. So football is a war game. And in the early years, there's all sorts of quotes in the book about this. Uh, the, the, the war imagery, the war language that is used to describe football is just all over the place. And the other thing, Eric, the other characteristic about football, as we know very well, is violence. You have violence in hockey, of course, when you have the fights. But violence in football is really actually scripted into the game itself. So you have a lot of violence, which is part of the reason it's attractive to a lot of Americans. <laughs> uh, we are a violent society. I think we have to come to terms with that. And the football in many ways is, is the quintessential American game because, because of its violence. So uh, football is really work, And we see that to get today. Uh, you're, you're watching a football game and the announcer refers to the quarterback as the field general or the quarterback is launching long bombs or bullet passes. Uh, they talk about trench warfare. That is between the offensive line and the defensive line, uh, much like uh, you would use in military language. And even other terminology in football, training camp, scouting, uh, these are all military terms that apply to the game of football. Huh. That I've never really thought about that way, but you are absolutely right. And we, you know, oftentimes we hear announcers saying, you know, the, you know, the, the battle of these two teams uh, on the field or, you know, and it's uh, the strategy, uh, a lot of it, you know, you're trying to outflank your opponent just uh, as you would uh, a platoon in, in battle in, in a war. So that's very, very interesting insight. Well, and the other thing is that uh, as the, strategies on the battlefield have changed over the course of the 20th century. So too have football strategies. That is to say, in the early years of football, it was a running game for the most part. And, you know, you had just like you would have uh, trench warfare in World War I, beginning in the 1940s, 1950s with the Korean War, the Vietnam War. That's also the time that you had much more passing in professional football and college football as well. So as the strategies of warfare have changed over the course of the 20th century, the strategies of football have, have changed in the same direction. Uh, so going more to a, an aerial game, uh, aerial attacks uh, in, in both instances. So hmm, a very, very good insight on that. And, and you, you use the term uh, yourself just now, aerial attack. Again, that's a, uh, that's a military, yeah. <laughs> that's military language. <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Wow. I, I guess I've never really thought too much about that, the, the, the correlations between them, but you're, I think you definitely uh, are onto something there. Doctor, so you, religious part, you said, you know, it started off uh, back in the uh, beginning of the industrial revolution. Now, how does that, is the religion still affected into uh, the games of sport and particularly football to, to this day? Yeah, I think it is in, in many ways. And, and I, I wanted to go in the book, I wanted to go deeper than this, but you have these kind of surface similarities. Uh, for example, you have sacred space, right? 
for religion, it's the holy city of Mecca or a cathedral or a, a, a synagogue. In sports, you've got Fenway Park or Wrigley Field or Lambeau Field or the Big House in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, particularly places that have more historical meaning and a, a more a more history to them. Uh, you have this sort of sense of sacrality in those places. Uh, you have ritual. Uh, you know, as a football fan, uh, there are certain rituals. The, the national anthem, for example, uh, the the players running onto the field amidst all sorts of pyrotechnics with fire and smoke and so forth. Well, in in uh, in religion, you've got a liturgical procession that begins worship with the bishops and the acolytes and the priests uh, processing along with the choir, and very often with incense uh, smoke coming along with them. Very similar to what you have in a football game. You have, uh, you have authorities, you have, uh, uh, you have a sacred text, uh, you have the Bible or the Quran or whatever it might be. For sports, it's a rule book. And everybody agrees on the, these premises that this is how the game is, is supposed to be played. You have authorities, a head coach or a bishop, a cardinal, a priest, uh, um, and an ultimate authority would be the Pope, for example, or the commissioner in baseball. And you even have saints. Certainly you have saints within religion, but for uh, sports, uh, the saints are the members of the Hall of, Halls of Fame because uh, they're the ones who are exemplary. Those They have excelled uh, over the rest of us. So you have those uh, kind of commonalities as well. But again, as I in the book, I wanted to go a little bit deeper than that and say, look, there are uh, instances in the development of these sports where people with religious convictions really were part of the, the evolution of these sports, but also brought those values to, to each individual sport. Okay. So I, I guess if you take that further, the, the crowds and the fans in the stands would be the, the congregations. Is that the, the correct correlation? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the best examples of that actually is, is hockey, I think, because uh, you know, hockey is really Canada's game, as we know. And uh, what's interesting about hockey is that it emerges out of lacrosse. The lacrosse is the immediate uh, um, uh, predecessor to hockey. And lacrosse, uh, there was a big effort in 1867, which is the year of the Canadian Confederation. That's when Canada really became a country rather than uh, a, a British uh, um, and, uh, part of the Commonwealth. Uh, and there was an attempt on that year, in that year, 19, 1867, to designate lacrosse as the real national game of, of uh, Canada. So you have that uh, that connection. And I was going to make another point and I forgot now what it was about that. So maybe I'll circle back to it. I apologize. Oh, not, not a problem at all. Okay. So you, you, you've, I mean, you really got my wheels spinning here. So you've, you've got uh, you know, the fans that are, are, are passionate about their teams, just like, uh, you know, parishioners are, are, are passionate about their, their faith and practicing their faith and talking about their faith and, uh, you know, spreading their, trying to spread their, their faith on to, to others and uh, get them <laughs> yes. to uh, join the congregation. So uh, I guess that would be like bandwagoning uh, <laughs> that we have in sports. So uh, very yeah. interesting. 
Yeah, and actually, I did remember your your, your comment just now reminded me of the point I was trying to make. So, uh, with hockey being Canada's game, the the real congregation nationally is a telecast every Saturday night during the hockey season, Hockey Night in Canada, and you know the the it's a kind of call to worship <laughs> where for Canadians to gather around their television and watch two hockey games as part of their their their, their coming together, and that again talks to the uh, speaks to the the need for community. Uh, that is that. Uh, we're looking for some sort of uh, attachment to others. And at one time, and it still does for a lot of people, religion was that place of, of congregation or place of attachment. I think now more and more, it's uh, tribal loyalties to teams. Uh, I, I mentioned in the book, I have a friend here in town who, who said uh, in our conversation, he said, if I'm filling my car with gas at the station, gas station and a pickup truck comes up alongside of me with a New England Patriots bumper sticker, we immediately have something to talk about, even though we might be very different in terms of our socioeconomic background or class. Uh, we may have politics utterly diametrically opposed to one another, but being Patriots fans, we have that commonality. We have that, that, uh, uh, that bond that uh, it eludes us, I think, in many other areas of American life. Hmm, you're, you're right. I guess even if uh, your opposition, you know, uh, after this uh, past Sunday and, and last evening, uh, I'm a Steelers fan, apologetically. And after the, the, even if I saw a Patriots fan or a Browns fan right now after losing to him, there's still a commonality of discussion that you could have about the game. Maybe it's opposing sides uh, of an opinion, but, uh, you know, you still have a, a, the bonding of, of that game and that ritual of, of the game being that was played. Yes, exactly. You do. <laughs> <laughs> well, very interesting. Now, how about, um, I guess if we stay in the realm of uh, professional football, uh, you know, Sundays sort of being that, that holy day where, you know, that's where the majority of the games are, are played and, uh, you know, it's football Sunday. Is that uh, another one of the correlations that you make? It is. And I think that uh, also provides a, a way of understanding how it is we've moved away from organized faith to athletics. Uh, of course, uh, in the early days of each of these sports, there were strict uh, Sabbatarian laws. That is to say uh, that these games could not be played on Sundays because this was the day for church. And you know what happens, of course, is that uh, the owners in particular uh, push for the repeal of those laws for their own economic uh, interests and well-being. Uh, I use an example in the book of East Lake Community Church, which is in the suburbs of Seattle, Washington. And Seattle, of course, is in the Pacific time zone. And their Sunday morning worship was at 10 o'clock, as it is for many other religious groups uh, in America. Well, when the Seahawks were playing in the Eastern time zone against the Bills or the Steelers or the Giants or whomever, the Dolphins for that matter, um, the game time, one o'clock Eastern, is exactly 10 o'clock Pacific time. So what are you going to do? And what they did, as is true of a lot of religious groups, they 
canceled their 10 o'clock Sunday morning worship service and rescheduled it for five o'clock on Sunday afternoon after the games were over. So that's an indication of who is uh, determining or dictating the schedule. And these days it's the athletic events that uh, seem to be taking precedence over religious gatherings. Uh, interesting. And probably when they developed a Sunday night football, that probably put a, another angst into their schedule. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I expect it did. I hadn't thought about that. Yes, but I expect so. <laughs> well, very interesting. Now, how does, um, with all this going, going on and, you know, I, I know they're working around schedules for, for worship services. And is there anything else that uh, religion is, is doing to embrace or to uh, repel uh, you know, some of the their um, parishioners and, and the faithful from uh, going, you know, over the edge and being a, a total fanatic and be, you know, stay a fanatic towards their religion. Is there some measures yeah, being taken? That's, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not aware of anything. I, I think I think uh, a lot of religious leaders are just kind of throwing up their hands and said, we can't compete. We can't compete with this. Uh, it's it's such a major cultural force for so many people that if we try to stand against it or denounce it, you know, we'll lose credibility with uh, with our followers. And uh, we simply can't, can't compete again, like this, uh, this church out in Washington. And again, that's not an unusual story. A lot of a uh, lot of a lot of places of worship have made those sorts of concessions. Okay, and I think the the other the other way you see this sort of accommodating is the the muscular Christianity movement, which I mentioned earlier. But you also have, for example, among uh, Roman Catholics, the uh, CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, that begins, I believe, in the 1920s. Don't hold me to that. In Chicago, and that again provides athletics for young Catholics so that they can participate in this muscular Christianity movement, or even among Jews, the young men's Hebrew associations that were trying to, in effect, replicate the YMCAs, also offering rec recreation along with the religious instruction. And by the way, this goes way back, and I don't spend a whole lot of time with this in the book, but I do mention it, way back to the ancient Greeks, the ancient gymnasiums that were founded in ancient Greece were a place of athletic pursuits and competition, but also a place where people came to discuss ideas, whether it be religious ideas or philosophical ideas. And it was a place where both the, the, the mind and the spirit, as well as the body, was being uh, exercised. So uh, this has a long, long history, even dating back long before muscular Christianity emerged. Okay. Okay. Now you just brought the, I'm picturing uh, like the Roman Colosseum. And I believe I've, I've seen photographs of, and, or maybe I've, I've read it where they had uh, statues of their, uh, the, the gods that they believed in incorporated into the design or maybe in the arches or something of, of the Colosseum. Is that sort sure. of what you're talking about with the Greek uh, <laughs> arenas also? Yes. I, yeah. I think that would be an example of that sort of thing, but uh, you know, the, and, and the Greeks had this idea. Um, I don't want to get philosophical here because it's, I'm not a philosopher, but uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics uh, argued that individuals can be, can develop virtues within themselves by practice, by being virtuous. So uh, similarly to uh, 
to an athlete. Uh, a, a, a place kicker becomes a good place kicker by kicking the ball, <laughs> by being a place kicker uh, over and over again, you know, building this muscle memory and so forth. And so to the cultivation of virtues was uh, really intertwined with athletic development in, uh, in ancient Greece. Okay. I, I guess maybe the, the epitome that comes to my mind in modern days, and I think it's probably accidental maybe that this happened, but at the University of Notre Dame, uh, you know, you have the football field, I think, believe the one end zone looks on a building that has a, a picture of, of Jesus with his hands up, and they've so deemed him uh, to be touchdown Jesus, uh, which uh, affectionately called around the exactly. world. So, <laughs> exactly. And it, it looks right over the, the football stadium. Yes, I've been there, and it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it might be somewhat accidental, and uh, but I, I'm not sure how exactly that whole thing came about, but it's definitely a fact of life that in uh, the world of football today, that's for sure. So, uh, well, well, doctor, I appreciate you coming. This is very intriguing. Um, now, I guess you, you said something early on in our discussion about how, you know, sort of the, the mid century, the 1950s sort of uh, culminated to where we got to modern uh, athletics and modern sports with the big four. Now I'm assuming uh, this was a gradual, uh, I, I guess, uh, competition, maybe for lack of a better word, between, you know, religious and athleticism leading up to that. So there was some point where they were probably fairly equal. Would that be like the World War II era between World War I and World War II? Yeah, probably would be. Yeah. It really, the, the zenith for uh, American religious uh, affiliation, religious life was probably the 1950s in the Cold War era. And I think it's only really been in the last several decades that that's begun again to shift more in the direction of athleticism. And again, I, you know, I, I, I'm not suggesting that the two are mutually exclusive. I mean, there are a lot of people who attend church and then head off to the, to the stadium for, for, for a Sunday afternoon, uh, watching a baseball game or whatever, whatever it might be. But it is striking me that the level of religious adherence has dropped rather dramatically, frankly, over the last uh, several decades, at the same time that uh, athletic passion, I think, has, has increased. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I'm not saying on an individual basis, but if you're looking at it from uh, 50,000 feet and uh, you know studying everything, you're, you're absolutely right. The trends are sort of going opposite directions, and uh, but the similarities are, are uncanny. And uh, I'm glad that you pointed those out to, and uh, let us know about that. Uh, why don't you let us know again uh, what the title your book is and where people can find it again? It's called Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. It's available, uh, should be available in local bookstores, but uh, also bookshop.com. I'm sorry, bookshop.org, amazon.com, of course, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, other places as well. And I should say that uh, we've been talking about a lot of the elements of this book, but um, I also try to look into the symbolism surrounding each book. Uh, I'm sorry, each uh, team sports. I, we also already talked about basketball as an urban game. We talked about football as a military game. Hockey is Canada's game uh, for all sorts of very interesting reasons. Uh, baseball is the quintessential immigrant game because it's the only game where the defense controls the ball. And it's the object of the offensive player, the batter, to disrupt the defense's control of the ball. 
and he's outnumbered nine to one. Just like the immigrant coming into the country about that time uh, was very much out outnumbered in his attempts to make a place in American society. And as he looked out into that hostile territory from the batter's box, he sees three islands of safety out there in that hostile territory. And the greatest triumph for the immigrant, as for the batter, is to return home. And so homecoming is a very important part uh, of baseball. And it's also true that immigrants or outsiders have always excelled at the game of baseball. In the 19th century, it would be immigrants from Germany or Italy or from Scandinavia. Uh, later on, of course, it's African-Americans who finally break the uh, color barrier with Jackie Robinson in 1947. And more recently, of course, as you know, a lot of players are coming from the Caribbean, particularly the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, and now Asia. So it's immigrants who have always uh, excelled in this game of baseball. And the game of baseball itself really replicates the immigrant experience. Well, doctor, you have a very interesting lens and uh, very philosophical. It's a very, very intriguing. Uh, so, so folks, I, I greatly suggest that you get a copy of Dr. Randall's book, Randall Balmer's book here. And, uh, you know, make sure you, you read this. It's a very compelling and interesting uh, subject matter indeed. Uh, doctor, do you have any, uh, before we let you go, do you have any social media or anything, that, or websites or anything that you'd like uh, people to know about so they can follow what you have going on? Yes, I do. Uh, I have a website. It's www.randallbalmer, randall2lsbalmer with one L.com. And uh, I'll try to keep it up. I, I'm not really good at uh, keeping up on this, this sort of thing, but I'll, I'll try to do that. But the book is listed there. Okay. And folks, if you're driving the car or don't have a pencil or pen to, to don't uh, worry about it, we're going to put it in the show notes of this podcast. You can also find it on pigskindispatch.com for later reference. So you can get connected to Dr. Balmer's information and to his book. And uh, Dr. Rainer Balmer, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, telling us about this very interesting discussion and uh, for recording it in, in your very interesting book. Thank you, Darren. It's been my pleasure. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.